Hello, hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. God, atheism, parenting, peace, anarchy, the whole mishmash and mess and clarity of the show is kind of ground down into one finely compacted show tonight. And the first question was really good, basic, detailed metaphysics and epistemology, that which exists and how we know it or doesn't exist and how we would know it doesn't with regards to a God and a really, really pleasant conversation with a very intelligent uh, Christian and I really, really enjoyed that chat. And the second caller was kind of curious how it was possible to disprove a theoretical entity or a non-sensual entity like a deity. And, you know, you hear this, well, agree to disagree, you can't prove God exists, you can't prove God doesn't exist, and so on. So we dove in a little bit more into that kind of detail. And the third caller was raised in a spare-the-rod-spoil-the-child kind of authoritarian household, and he's the parent of a five-year-old. And uh, he's got some concerns about peaceful parenting, and we had a really, really great chat about that stuff, uh, how to negotiate with a five-year-old, how to get a five-year-old to do something productive that's outside their window of preference, brushing teeth and so on, and uh, how to get all of that to work. And uh, it's a great father who listened well and had some really, really great feedback. So thanks, everyone, of course, for making all these conversations possible. You can, of course, help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate or fdrurl.com slash Amazon to use the affiliate link. So let's get it down and on and forward. All right. Well, up first today, we have Zach. Zach wrote in and said, assuming a god slash gods exist, what evidence slash proof would he use to prove the claim that this proclaimed being is in fact god or a god? In other words, how do you prove one's claim of being a god? That's from Zach. Hello, Zach. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm not sure what show you think you're calling into, but I'm an atheist. Uh, yeah, I, I was assuming that. I, I think my question had more to do with it's kind of a response to um, one of your um one of your uh, videos uh, where it was labeled uh, Christian proof or, or burden of proof. Right. And um, yeah, that, that was sort of my just roundabout question to um, maybe touch on some of the other uh, questions that you would ask that individual that um, e- even though I felt like they, they, they tried to answer some of your questions, I didn't feel like they really, um, answered them at least in the way that you were kind of looking for. So that was kind oh, of so what proof, would, what proof would I, sorry, you mean what proof would I accept for the existence of a deity? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was mostly curious. Sure. Well, um, I don't know what exactly a deity would mean because it's a, you know, fairly subjective term, mm-hmm. but if, you know, if, if I said to you, hey man, I'm in contact with omniscient intelligence, how would you check that? Uh, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Well, that there would be, there would be no way to, well, yeah, I, I suppose if, if there was a God, first of all, there wouldn't be a way to really prove that either way, given our, well, uh, sorry, this was not. This was actually supposed to be a, a sort of 
actual conversation. The way that I would, the way that I, if somebody said to me, Steph, I'm, I'm in contact with this omniscient intelligence, well, the first thing that I would do is I would start asking that person for information that only I had and the other person couldn't possibly have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what did I dream about last night? Right now, assuming I didn't tell anyone and I still remembered, right? Then that would be a piece of information that I would have and nobody else would have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would ask a series of questions that would just contain information that I would possess that nobody else would possess, or it would be extremely unlikely for anyone else to possess. And that would be my first test. Does that sure. make sense? Sure. Yes, it does. Now, if the person were able to answer those questions correctly, that would be pretty remarkable. And then what I would do is I would move on to things which would be virtually impossible to know, but which would be easy to verify. So, for instance, I'd go pick up my copy of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, which is this giant Russian novel, like uh, Atlas Shrugged, but without any action. And I would say, okay, if you're in contact with an all-knowing being, why don't you do the following? Tell me what the 73rd word is on page 216 of my copy. And there's lots of different copies. And I would obviously want that answer back right away. Mm. Uh, other things. Uh, you know, like I had a guy in here months ago about remote viewing. It was last summer, I think. And I picked up a bottle of blood worms and I said, what am I looking at? It doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> and then the, th the third thing that I would do is I would ask for uh, answers which nobody had as yet, but which could be verified. Mm. And I, I don't exactly have a list of those off the top of my head, but, you know, there are obviously scientific questions which remain open but unanswered. Of course, the origins of the universe would be a pretty important one, not just you know, magic, but something which could be verified. And so this would be a way of establishing that there was some kind of truly remarkable, unprecedented intelligence. And there would be a whole sequence of things that you could continue to ask. Mm. Uh, and of course, this person would know the future as well, right? Sure. So then I would do something. Um, I would say, what... Um, you know, what am I about to pick up in five seconds? Tell me now. Well, I guess that would be kind of tough because maybe I'd change it or whatever, right? But if the person, if I were to say, I'm about, I'm going to pick up something in 10 seconds, tell me what it is right now. And then if it, every single time that happened, I ended up picking up exactly what they said, well, that would be, that would be a consciousness independent of time. In other words, something that could see the future. And that would be, I think, pretty close to omniscient to me. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, as for all-powerful, well, I don't know. I mean, and, and the thing is, too, is that what does omniscience really mean? I mean, it means you know everything. But, of course, since I, as a mere piddling little mortal brain, can't know very much at all, what would it mean for me to grasp that something knows everything? Like, it's not something I could even really 
comprehend. And what does it mean to be all-powerful? But I'd, I'd certainly need to see some examples of some pretty remarkable power. Mm. You know, can, can you keep a Windows computer running at the same speed that it starts when you first buy it for at least three days after you install updates? No, you can't. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> so whatever it is that would be, you know, there would be a series of tests and they would escalate and so on. But at some point you'd say, well, it's either omniscient or as close to omniscient that it doesn't really make any difference. I mean, if human beings ask this intelligence 10 billion questions and it got them all right and then 10 billion and one it got wrong, I'll take it, you know, as close to omniscient as, as possible and as close <laughs> to omnipotent as possible. And that would be, um, that would be some example. The other thing that I would say is explain to me the mechanism by which you are communicating to this person who's in touch with you, right? Mm. Explain to me the physics by which that occurs. And, um, oh, and give me the cure for cancer. <laughs> so I can give it to everyone for free. But yeah, something like that. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess, um, I guess, uh, assuming it knows everything, I, I guess the, the assumption is if it does know everything, it's, it's claim of what it is is true. Um, because it could be lying, right? Um, well, yeah, so even if we establish omnipotence and omniscience, we still would then have to establish infinite virtue. Yes. Which would be impossible, because yes. given the amount of evil that goes on in the world, a being of infinite knowledge and infinite power would be easily able to stop evils in the world and wouldn't. So the more powerful the being is, the more sociopathically indifferent it is to suffering. So you can mm -hmm. escalate God's power, but all you do is downgrade his morality. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you understand none of this will ever, ever happen. Well, y yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, if, it's, if, there, if there were a God, the possibility of, of proving any of this would be, well, I, I would assume, like you said, of being mortal, um, imperfect, limited beings is probably beyond our grasp. <laughs> Well, it, beyond our grasp, I mean, it just, you understand that the de definitions of God are not positive definitions, they're mere negative definitions. Um, th basically, all the definitions of a deity involve complete and total incomprehensibility. Mm. Um, I mean, I felt that when I said, okay, if I were to say to someone who was in contact with a God, tell me what I'm going to pick up in 10 seconds. And if they said, you're a coffee cup, well, actually, they'd probably be right about that. But if they said, a light bulb, then I would immediately want to pick up a coffee cup to disprove the omniscience thing, right? Mm -hmm. So then would I weirdly end up with a light bulb in my head? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, none of these things. Omniscience is so incomprehensible to human beings unless you're on the left and into central planning, in which case it just seems to be what you have on your cornflakes every morning. But <laughs> omniscience is so incomprehensible to human beings that it is the opposite of everything we are. Uh, All-powerful. All you know, as organic mammals, we are severely curtailed in our powers. 
and all powerful. It's just well, what what is a human being, and what what can a human being understand and comprehend and process? Let's just make up a word that means the opposite of of everything that that is, and call it a deity. A deity is um a cloak for utter incomprehensibility. But we don't want to say incomprehensibility because that's too obvious. So we create all these hymns and emotionally stirring, evocative, holy fathers. And it's just, it's all incomprehensible. Like some concepts are great, right? I mean, length, right? Something is long and you get the concept of length, which is spread from end to end. We can vaguely think of something like infinite length and so on. It just, but we can't possibly imagine all knowledge, which is to say knowledge of the movement of every scrap of matter and energy from the beginning of time until the end of the time all across the universe and every single force affecting it for all time. It's utterly incomprehensible. Sure. What um, I'm kind of segueing and I know you mentioned this with um, with uh, Democrats, socialists, whatever. What? How would you describe the, the human sort of propensity to? I would say create create their own gods, like um, like you could say this 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 fanaticism for creating governments or these systems which function like gods and tell people what rights they have, what rights they don't have, um, you know, how we should live, how we should not live. I mean, what, what would be your natural explanation of, of that? Well, human beings don't create gods and they don't create governments. What they do is they create obedience. And these are just the labels for those, mm. right? If I said to you, do what I say, you'd be like, I don't think so, right? <laughs> now, if I said, do what I say, or I'll punch you, I mean, you may obey or not, but you'd be trying to get away, and I'd have no moral authority over you, right? You might have fear, mm. but there'd be no moral authority that I would have over you. Is that fair to say? Sure. Right. Now, if I say obey God and God is all good and if you don't like what God says don't blame me I'm just the messenger now if I can get you to believe that God is all good well you're not obeying me anymore are you mm. see this way I get your obedience without your natural mammalian resistance to being ordered around by assholes Mm. Right, I can create some perfect glowing goodness that you are in fact obeying. I am merely the messenger. And so it's not me. Like if I said, obey me or I'll set fire to you and your family. Holy God, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you, again, you might obey, but you wouldn't worship. Sure. But if I say, well, you have to obey what God says and I'm going to tell you what God says or he's going to send you and your family to hell forever and you'll burn forever, well, who am I going to get mad at? Right? Who are you going to get mad at? You can't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. So mm. Don't blame me for what God says. 
Can you get mad at God? Well, good luck with that, right? All-knowing, all-powerful, all-virtuous. Can't do it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the same way, the most potent illnesses in mankind to disable the defense system, right? To disable your immune and immune immunological responses, right? Well, people have a natural resistance to authority. I mean, anybody who's had kids knows that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was chatting with uh, a friend of mine today. Uh, she's got two daughters, great kids. And, um, she was telling me a story that when her daughter was two, she said, now I'm tired of picking up after you all the time. I'm tired of doing it all the time. Her two-year-old looked up at her and said, well, mom, I'm tired of hearing about it all the time. And that natural resistance we have to authority is what's supposed to limit the growth of totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And if you want to rule over people, you have the significant problem or resistance that they don't like being ruled over. People will do a lot that you ask them to. They'll do almost nothing that you order them to. I mean, just one-on-one without pomp and circumstance. And that's the, the big limit. Now, the fact that we don't like being ordered about is supposed to limit the predation upon us of others because it's time-consuming and expensive and risky to order people about, right? Sure. But if you can invent some abstract concept that they obey instead of you, but you're the only voice of that abstract concept, well, then you're all set. You can argue a priest. You can't argue God. You know, and, I... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I just... Um, so I, I... Just to give you a, just a quick sidebar, I, I work in the IT field. And uh, I'm, I'm fairly young. I work with a lot of younger people. But I, I can tell you this much. When I... I I'm more of a individualist type of uh, constitutional type person. I love history and that sort of thing. And, and I, I can tell you uh, a majority of the people that I run into that are, that are younger, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, a vast majority of them are, they claim to be socialists, a few to, a claim to be Marxists. And it's, it's very much like, uh, I would say, a, a religious type of dogma. Whenever I speak to them, it, it just really... It really blows me away. I, it, you know, they, they claim to be, many of them claim to be atheists, but yet they, it's sort of like this, you must obey government and you must give up your rights and you must do what it says and, you know, sacrifice for everyone else. And <laughs> so anyway. Well, and there's this, there's this abstract idea, whether it's class, the poor, the oppressed, the exploited, the workers. Mm the common good, the collective, all women, all men, this race, that race, this nation. It doesn't matter fundamentally what the abstraction is that you're supposed to obey. It only needs two characteristics. Number one, it has to be morally unquestionable. Mm. 
right? Like God, you, you, you can't morally question God. And the poor, you, you can't morally question caring, through the poor, caring for the poor through government programs. You can't morally question that, right? Because if you do, you hate the poor. <laughs> right? You, you can't morally question Planned Parenthood because if you do, then you want women to die for lack of health care. You can't morally question socialized medicine. You can't morally question whatever it is. that the because, So as long as the abstract, the concept is beyond moral questioning, the same thing's true of climate change these days. There's a great interview with Dr. Patrick Moore, the founder of Greenpeace, which we'll release, I'm sure, next week, but you really got to check it out. His argument is that global warming is healing the planet, saving plants who are starving of CO2 and also pushing back the next ice age. It's fantastic. But global warming, too. If you are skeptical towards catastrophic, catastrophic anthropogenic global warming, well, you just, you hate the planet, you hate the young, you're greedy, you're mean, whatever, right? It's, it's moral, it's, it's, so it has to be elevated to moral unquestionability, is number one. And number two, it must require an interpreter of what to do. It must require an interpreter of what to do. In other words, it must be morally beyond reproach, number one. And number two, it cannot have a voice of its own. You think of God, right? Morally beyond reproach has no voice of his own. Sure. Uh, the, the poor, morally beyond reproach, you've got to help them, right? Mm-hmm. But they have no voice of their own. In other words, if somebody says we should help the poor, you could say, okay, uh, who, which one? I'll go talk to them. No, 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 it's not supposed to work that way, right? It's the poor is a big abstract concept. can't speak for itself. I speak for women. Really? <laughs> All of them? All of them at once? Because uh, sometimes they're a little tough to interrupt. Yeah, so, um, how, so how, how yeah. do you... Sorry to interrupt again, but how... So, and that's one of my biggest, my my largest frustrations because when I, when I speak to people and, and I... I to me, it's kind of like, well, uh, yes, it's 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 one thing to to help people, but really, from my perspective, it should be really your choice. It shouldn't be forced on you. And it, people tend to not see this as as theft, as stealing. It, it's just kind of like, well, we're we're making you be kind. And and I guess my question for that is, how how do you how do you argue in such a way where you influence people's minds to sort of realize, oh, yeah, this is sort of <laughs> fraud? <laughs> well, and I'm sorry, there's a third one, which is, of course, the, the point of it, which is it has to involve a resource transfer. Okay. Right. So, I mean, just to take the example of the poor, we should help the poor. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But even if we say we should help the poor, what is it to help the poor? I don't know. Have you ever tried helping someone who's poor, like directly, personally in your life? Uh, no. You selfish bastard. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> why do you think that is? Do you not know any poor people? 
that may be just an excuse, but uh, no, I, I've always found it to be there's there's some people who are, you know, given their personalities, they would go out and help people directly. Whereas someone like me, I'm, I'm my strengths are in other areas. So that's, that's my, I know that's my justification. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, I had a friend when I was younger, a lot younger, and his mom uh, it's so depressing. Like single moms in general have no clue how to raise boys. I mean, if they knew anything about men, they wouldn't have been abandoned by the fathers of their children or driven them off. Having single moms raise boys is kind of like having racist blacks raise white kids or racist whites raise black kids or whatever. Already proven an inability to get along. And his mom you know, like a lot of single moms do, they, she turned him into a kind of substitute husband hmm. to, a, to, 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 f- to fend off loneliness. She always cooked for him. She always wanted to come over. And, uh, and then she would always, when he got older, she'd nag him that he wasn't getting married. Hmm. And I remember saying to him, hey, there are women in the world, but trust me, they're not over at your mom's house on Tuesday night for Murder, She Wrote and Hamburger Helper. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't dress that well. You know, the standard bowl haircut. Mm-hmm. I knew him once. He cut his bangs with a knife. Oh, Seriously. And anyway, I had some help with style and, uh, I had a kind of makeover in the way that I describe in my novel, The God of Atheists, and uh, I decided to help him out. We went, we went uh, downtown and uh, went to some funky clothing stores and got him to pry open his dusty wallet and outflooded moths and long-expired coupons. And, you know, he laid down some cash for some decent wear. You know, I got him to go to the gym I went to and we started, I got him to join me in my workouts and got him a decent haircut and all that kind of stuff. And to make a long story short, it didn't do a damn thing. Hmm. And I've, I won't go into, I've gone into this a bunch of times before, but I've, I've really tried to, to help people. And the reality is that I've actually ended up helping the most people by pursuing my passions, mm-hmm. not by focusing on what I think is good for them, if that makes sense. Um, when I pursued my passions uh, to write great software, and, and then I ended up co-founding a company, and we, we grew it and hired a lot of people, and so in pursuing my passions, I helped a lot of people. A lot of these people were young kids coming out of college. They had a lot of debt. We paid well. I was, you know, happy to mentor them if they were interested. And, um, you know, helped them sort of get out of, get into the middle class and all that. In, in doing this show, helped hundreds of thousands of people around the world by pursuing my passion for philosophy. And so whenever I tried to 
help other people by trying to figure out what I thought would be good for them and providing it or cajoling it or encouraging it in them. It never went anywhere. And it just turned out to be a really frustrating waste of resources. Mm. On, on both, I mean, this guy might, have sa- might as well have saved his money buying cool clothes and getting a cool haircut. It wasn't going to make any difference to his reproductive success over time, as it turned out. And I have done the good that I have done in the world, I have done by pursuing my dreams. And then it sweeps people up and provides resources to other people. You know, we've helped countless people through this show. And when it comes to helping the poor, I mean, I don't know what poor people need. I don't even know if them being poor is a problem. You know, there's not a lot of charities, which is like, Lamborghinis for monks. <laughs> Those poor monks. <laughs> they have to walk or ride burrows everywhere. Let's get them some Lamborghinis. Because, no, they're monks. They vow poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Unless they're British pop groups. So I don't know whether being poor is a problem. If being poor is a problem, I don't know whether money should be given directly to the poor. I don't know whether money should be left in the hands of the most productive so they can create jobs, which benefits the poor either because they hire the poor people or with more people in the workforce, more goods are produced, which means the price of things go down, which means the poor people's fixed income goes further. I don't know any of these things. And that's the basic humility that is necessary to advocate for freedom. Mm-hmm. In this, occasionally it feels like godforsaken planet. It's the basic humility. I don't know. I don't know how to help the poor. And that's not because I lack knowledge. It's because I lack vanity. And I'm willing to admit, Socrates style, that I don't know Mm. what the price of kumquats should be in Argentina next week. I don't know what the interest rates should be in New York six months from now, or tomorrow, or five minutes from now, or five seconds from now. I don't know how many loaves of bread should be baked by the bakers in Albuquerque starting at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. I don't know whether all smartwatches should have Bluetooth that turns off or not. I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. And because I have no idea, and because I'm a moral philosopher, I follow the non-aggression principle, which is do what thou wilt, but do not use force or fraud against others. And that basic humility, say, so if the poor are a problem, then how do we solve that problem? We solve that problem by letting everyone pursue their dreams and desires with as much freedom as humanly possible. And some of those people will go start companies, either hire the poor directly, you know, I helped lots of poor people, even just through my business, because not only did I pay wages to poor people, but also that drove up the wages for everyone else in the industry. Mm -hmm. By taking people off the market, it drove up the wages for everyone else. So, 
I don't know. And anybody who says, well, the solution is taxation and the... I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as saying that the universe is here because God made it so. There is no, no one who knows that answer because that answer cannot be known. Mm. In the same way that nobody can know what the price of something is unless there's a free market. You know, that price calculation problem that can't be solved by central planning. Well, I, I can tell you this much. One, I had a conversation with one of our executives at the company I work at, and um, it just blows me away because many of these people are very smart, um, but we, we were talking about the market and, and this and that, and um, we were talking about central planning, and, and his feeling was it was sort of like the, the George Bush claim of, well, we have to save it from itself. Um, whereas my point was, well, in my opinion, the market is always right, not, you know, some person saying, well, it should be this. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, it, it, it just seems as though most people that I run into that are very intelligent want, want someone to have those answers, I guess. Right. So. Right. And, and people do want to be able to outsource. The, the, see, when it comes to the government, people don't actually want to take care of the poor. They want to stop thinking about the poor. Mm. And that's a very different thing. Right? They, like, when people say the universe is here because God made it, they don't want an answer as to why the universe is here because it's not an answer. Magic is not an answer. So they don't want an answer. What they want is to stop thinking about the question. Mm. Because there's a tension when you know that the problem needs to be solved, but you haven't solved it yet. There's a sort of unease. This is actually fairly well documented neurobiologically. When you know you, you know, if you're case selected, if you are selected, whatever. But if you're case selected, when you know you've got to get something done or you know there's a problem that needs to be solved, that's important. And it's not solved, you feel this kind of unease. I don't know if you've ever had it where you're driving someplace and before GPSs, I don't know if you're that young, but you're driving someplace and <laughs> you just, did I pass the street yet? I don't know. I thought I would have passed. You get that uneasy feeling, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a healthy feeling, but it's uncomfortable. And so people like government programs not because they want to help the poor, but they want to stop thinking about the poor. They want to stop feeling uneasy about the poor. But the problem is, of course, it doesn't work because you give the government this power and uh, people just keep nagging you about the poor, so you pay them off again. They keep nagging you about the poor, you pay them off again, and the poor keep getting worse and more trapped in cycles of poverty and the welfare cliff gets higher and right, worse and worse and worse. And then eventually the system collapses. And then there are a few more poor people, probably yourself included. And uh, I mean, this is the battle that Socrates was fighting 2,500 years ago, is to pull people away from the pretense of an answer. Lots of problems in the world. And people say, ah, well, you know, if we have some sort of central planning, those problems will go away. If we have communism, these problems will go away. If we have uh, Marxist robot utopia cities, these problems will go away with magic. Just, you know, surrender your power, these problems will go away. 
And I don't know what it's going to take for people to have the maturity to say, I don't know. And you don't know. And we shouldn't initiate force to try and solve this problem. Freedom requires that people live with uneasiness. Because in freedom, some people are going to fail and fail badly. In freedom, some people are not going to take out health insurance and then they're going to get some ungodly illness that's very expensive to treat and they won't be able to come up with the money and they'll die. That really sucks. I mean, that's a flippant way of putting it. That's a genuine tragedy. It's a self-inflicted tragedy. It's a genuine tragedy. In freedom, women will become secret shopaholics and gambling addicts and run their families into so much debt that they get thrown out on the street. That's terrible. Well, we can't have that. (laughs) And that makes, to be honest, men can handle it in general. Hmm. Because we're not bubble-wrapped and coddled from, you know, You know, a, a boy cries in the playground. He's told to toughen up, right? Mm-hmm. Walk it off, son. There was this, uh, like a character out of The Simpsons, that ripped janitor. There was this Scottish wrestling coach I had when I was a kid. You know, some kid pile drives into my front teeth and my lips swollen up like I've just had a kiss with Bill Clinton. And I can remember this guy, like, breathing these acrid fumes of like old sailors armpit tobacco breath or something and he's like walk it off walk it off it's like it's my lip i don't walk on my anyway so (laughs) but you know the the girl cries and oh hugs are you okay (laughs) and so you know we're a bit leathery men in general i don't know about the new generation doesn't seem to be quite that way inclined but um you know we're a bit leathery or at least my generation we're a bit toughened up and, um, but I think women have a, a tougher time and it's a beautiful part about women. It's not a complaint. It's just that if you take the natural sentimentality of women and unite, unite it with the awesome power of the state, then women find a way to assuage their feelings of discomfort at looking at failure. And they use the state to prop up the people who have failed and that makes them feel better in the short run. But like any addiction, it has significantly negative effects in the long run. Yeah, I think I think you had said something at some other some other point in other discussions, something about um, uh, women finding loser men and then having children to them, and sort of the state picking up for their poor decision making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know the huge risk that women take. You know, as I've said before, I mean, there used to be massive amounts of art produced to help women with the most fundamental decision of civilization, which is who gets to hunt my eggs, right? I mean, that, that's, that's all. Civilization just comes down to how women answer that question. Mm-hmm. Who gets to hunt my eggs? Who gets to impregnate me? And if a woman makes a good decision and gets a stable man um, who's productive and loving and caring and a good provider and so on, then civilization can continue. And if women choose bad men, then civilization cannot continue. 
because when there's a government, because um, the women will run to the bad men. Sorry, the women will run to the government to save them from the bad men who ran away, and they'll cry victim, and they'll cry helplessness, and the natural white knighting of men will take over, and women will get everything they want, and society grinds to a pathetic halt um, <laughs> and collapses. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's like this is why marriage is, is so important. Um, and, of course, what happens is as women get more and more resources from the state, tax bills go up. Quality of education goes down, 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 down. And therefore, the smarter people look at it and say, well, it's really becoming a pretty bad deal to have children. And then there aren't enough children, particularly productive, intelligent children who grow up to be productive, intelligent adults. And so what happens then? Well, incoming third world tsunami of imaginary replacements. <laughs> I think I think that was addressed in the movie Idiocracy. <laughs> yes, but without the race element. But that's understandable. Yes. <laughs> All right. Does that uh, is that okay? My as you can hear, my voice is just I'm just getting over a mild cold, so I'm going to try and spare my throat from too much tonight. So do you mind if I move on to the next caller? Yeah, great. Yeah, it was very nice speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. A, a pleasure. I mean, a pleasure for me. I mean, pleasure. <laughs> No, it was. <laughs> All right. Well, up next is Parker. Parker wrote in and said, I recently began reading Everyday Anarchy and quickly realized that you hold atheism not just as a belief, but as an absolute truth. Why is it that you view atheism this way as opposed to a belief system that requires some level of faith? That's from Parker. Hello, Parker. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Stefan? I'm doing well and doing good, I hope. All right, so tell me what your definition is of atheism, and that may be what can solve our dilemma. Well, as I understand it, atheism is the um, belief that there is no God on a, on a fundamental level. Okay, so there is no God, right, okay. Uh, so I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, I've got a whole book uh, called Against the Gods, question mark, and... Um, People can check that out. Uh, it's one of my favorite books that I ever wrote, and it's relatively short, shockingly, but it's, I think it's very good. But um, I should say I'm very proud of that book. <laughs> and so do you believe that it's an act of faith or an act of irrational assumption to believe that there is no deity? I don't believe that it's irrational, no, but I think that it does require some level of faith because just as you cannot prove that there is a God, you can't prove that there isn't. And there's very, Oh, no, I can. You can prove that there isn't? Yes. I've I've read some of your book against the gods, and so I'm I'm, <clears throat> I'm interested to see exactly how you would respond to that. Well, all you have to do is uh, give me a definition of a god. There's an omnipotent, um, omniscient being who, in in my understanding, I'm I'm a Christian specifically, so I would I would argue that um, God also created the universe. That's an important thing to understand. Excellent. Okay. Now your assertion, first of all as you know, is in the category of false until proven true. As is the case with all propositions. I'm sorry, I don't think I understand. Would you mind saying that again? Sure, no, no problem at all. Um, the, the burden of proof lies on the person making the assumption. Sure. Sorry, my, making the assertion, right? 
and and the more like so if i say there's a pebble in the ganges river okay do i have to go and i mean it's of course there is right there's there's a crab in the pacific okay yeah uh, so there are things that of course we kind of kind of understand that they're true just because they're not exactly an extraordinary claim right sure if i say i have a pet dog okay well maybe i don't but it's not an extraordinary claim right if i say i have a pet dragon assuming it's not komodo or if i have a if i have a pet unicorn sure or a pet leprechaun well that's an extraordinary claim right of course if i say not there's a pebble in the ganges but there is a um, a giant sea serpent 300 feet long in the ganges right so the more outlandish or surprising or uh, confusing or seemingly contradictory the claim is, the higher the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. Now, right. if I say I have a pet leprechaun, and then is it, is it incumbent upon you to disprove me? No. Okay. Would you accept that as a true statement? That you have a pet with, leprechaun? With, Yes. No. Okay. And the fact, and if I say, well, you can't disprove that I have a pet leprechaun, does that mean it's possible? That you do? Yes, it's possible that you yeah. do. It is possible that I do. I mean, I, I don't believe you, but it's, it's not completely um, out of the question. I mean, just because I've never seen one or no one has ever seen one doesn't mean that there isn't. I don't believe you, and I don't think that it makes a whole lot of sense to believe you, but I cannot disprove definitively that you don't. All right. I'm going to assume you have some Irish heritage in you. Is there any <laughs> imaginary being that you've ever heard of that you accept does not exist? Yes. And what would that being be? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of mythical creatures that I don't believe exist. Okay. Give me an example. If, because leprechaun you've got in the maybe category, but give me one that is not. Well, I don't believe that leprechauns exist. Maybe I may, I may have misphrased what I was saying. No, but you said it's possible that they do. I see where you're going with this, right? Because if, if it's... I can make it easier. Because I get... Okay, so maybe there's tiny space aliens who call themselves leprechauns or whatever. Okay. If I say to you, hey man, check it out. Do you know this morning I drew a square circle? And, um, I mean, that's a contradictory concept right of course something cannot be both a square and a circle and don't give me any of the cylinder crap people in youtube comments right squares are two-dimensional circles are two-dimensional so if i say to you i have drawn something which is both a square and a circle simultaneously what would you say i would say that that's impossible okay impossible right absolutely yeah not implausible leprechauns apparently you've got implausibility I mean, if you're a taxi driver, if you specifically were a taxi driver, someone called up and said, I'm a leprechaun and I need a ride to the end of the rainbow, you'd say, oh, okay, only if it's really slow. Because, <laughs> well, I'm just kidding. Okay, so square circle. And you would say, um, that's, not, that's not true. Right? Well, this, I mean, yes, of course, it fundamentally violates logic because the definition of a square and the definition okay. of a circle are not uh, compatible. Yeah, it's called a self-detonating statement. Like, I don't have to run around and, you know, Check your drawers, right, to find out if it's somewhere in the house, right? It's just, it's false by definition, right? Yes. 
Okay, so when you posit the existence of something, then you must provide proof of that thing's existence, right? If someone is to believe you definitively, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, for instance, I mean, take a prosaic example. If I say, let's say that I'm selling, I don't know, what was a good year for a gremlin car? 79? 82? I have no idea, but let's just say it's going to drive some car efficient out as nuts. I say, listen, I have a classic premium 1982 gremlin for sale. Only 15,000 bitcoins. Right? And you come to my garage and um, there's no car there. You're not giving me the bitcoins, right? Of course not, no. Right. Because I have claimed that I have something. I have claimed that I have this gremlin, but when you come, there's nothing there, right? Yes. So making the claim that something exists is not the same as it existing. I'm sorry. And so if you claim that a deity exists, then it is incumbent upon you to provide the proof for that existence. Now, if, you, if I say there's a 1982 gremlin in the garage, you open the garage, there's nothing there, is the question unresolved or is it resolved of the gremlin's existence in the garage? No, it's, it's definitely resolved, yes. Okay, okay. So, if you are saying to me that a deity exists, it is incumbent upon you to show me the empirical evidence of its objective existence. Yes, if I'm, if I'm to expect you to believe um, definitively that it exists, then I would have to provide evidence, proof rather. Right. And if you cannot, then it does not exist. See, there's a fundamental difference between the gremlin and a deity of some kind. Because the existence of the gremlin is, you know, interesting, but it is not, it doesn't solve, you know, problems like, you know, how the universe came into being and how... No, 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 that, let's go back in the question. The deity only solves the question of where the universe came from if you accept the deity exists already. If the deity doesn't exist, it doesn't do anything to solve that question. Fair enough. The utility of the existence of something. Like if I say, I really, really need a getaway car because I just robbed a bank. Okay, I really, like it would be incredibly useful for me to have that getaway car, but that doesn't summon it into existence, right? The utility of the existence of something has no bearing on its actual existence or not, right? Yes. And I look, first of all, let me just pause for a second as well, Parker, and say, you are a man of faith. That's correct. And I, I fully get that it is not diplomatic of me to compare God to a gremlin. I, I, like, I, <laughs> I, complete, like I, I just want to pause to acknowledge that. And I really don't mean it as any kind of slight against oh, your faith. Believe me, I understand. This isn't... Okay, I'm, and I'm not trying to make it silly or goofy or anything like that. It could be a Maserati, I mean. But, <laughs> you know, for, for the people listening, right, uh, it is philosophically... There is no difference between the diamond and the pebble in terms of how you establish the existence of one versus yeah, the other, yeah. right? I mean, the, the, the methodology for determining the existence of something is irrespective of the content, right? Perhaps. I mean, I, w I would say that by the nature of, of a god, 
I mean, you, I've, I, I wouldn't come on your show without even making an attempt to understand what you believe. And so I did read some of your book against the gods and you do uh, pretty much rule out that there could be a God that exists in this universe. And that's just not possible because it violates physics and time and all this. And well, hang on. We just, we just sprinted through a pretty dense chapter there and that's going to cause a lot of people to short circuit and I, we don't have to review the whole argument. But basically, if God exists within the universe, then the existence of God can be empirically measured, right? Yes, of course. And if the existence of a deity can be objectively and empirically measured and is bound within space and time and subject to all the limitations contained therein, I think that most atheists and theists would accept that that really can't be the same as a God, right? Right. I used to call him super dude. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, like some some astoundingly intelligent being with powers that seem as supernatural to us as a supersonic airplane would seem to a Neanderthal, yeah, right? That sounds about right, actually, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a, a hugely advanced um, biological intelligence of some kind, even if it had transferred itself to some giant crystal computer that could roam about the galaxy, you know, on on the smug pug, pug, pugs of Leonardo DiCaprio's smugness about global warming. Actually, that would probably be faster than light. <laughs> but if, however advanced an intelligence would be that had evolved and been part of the universe, we would not put that in the category of a deity, right? Yes. So the deity has to be outside of the universe, and certainly in order to create the universe, we would expect that. Or, I mean, the, the mother doesn't end up inside her baby, right? The baby's got to be contained within the mother. The mother has to be bigger than the baby to produce the Indeed. baby. So the deity has to exist outside the universe. Yes. The problem is, of course, that outside the universe has exactly the same characteristics as non-existence. Right? That there's no... Like when we say something doesn't exist, and we say that something is outside the universe they have exactly the same epistemological or metaphysical even reality definition. In other words, how would I know the difference between something which doesn't exist? Okay, something doesn't exist, we can't measure it, we can't locate it, we can't find either any tangible evidence of it or its effects, we can't do anything with it. It's exactly the same as it not being there. I would say... That's not... I would And outside the universe, it's the same. Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was, I would, I was going to say that uh, I would say that the evidence if there is any of a deity, is, is the universe itself. I'm sorry, could you repeat that, please? The evidence, if, I mean, obviously, if, if, if a deity exists outside the universe, then it cannot be observed, right? But the evidence of its existence, if there is any, I would say, is that it, you'd be remiss to leave out the existence of the universe and life um, itself. I think that the existence of the universe, and particularly life, in, as uh, life specifically is evidence of the existence of a date and maybe not proof of course i wouldn't try to say that that's proof of anything but it is evidence well i don't know that i don't know that and and i mean i just had a conversation a show or two ago about a guy um we t we talked about uh, this um idea that the universe is evidence of a deity that you know things which come into being must have been caused to come into being and, and so on um and I don't want to sort of repeat all the arguments from from that show, but 
I don't think that we can um, get a deity from the universe, certainly not in any conclusive way, and certainly not in any way that would lead to any kind of religion. Right? Are you saying that it's not that the universe is not definitive proof? Well, I don't know. Since we don't know exactly where the universe came from, we, you know, any speculation is futile. I mean, what we should continue to do is continue to, you know, push back the boundaries of physics until we can get closer to the beginning of the universe and uh, try and figure out what's going on and, and so on, right? I mean, but where we don't know, we should simply accept that we don't know, right? I mean, it's this old idea that if there's, if you're in a house and there's a locked door, you've never been to the house before, right? There's a locked door. What's on the other side of that door? Well, you can speculate if you want, but until you open the door and go through, maybe it's just a, a wall, right? Uh, maybe it's a, a secret famous five-style tunnel. Yeah, well, but I, you simply can't. I mean, what was before the universe was the universe caused to come into existence. I mean, this simply, they're unanswerable questions because we don't know. And the urge that we have, and I just talked about this with the last caller, of course, the urge that we have, not knowing is uncomfortable. And there's two ways of solving that discomfort, right? Well, I guess three. One is try and train yourself to not be bothered by things you don't know. I guess that's important. Yeah, right. And number two is work with reason and evidence and science to try and uncover as many answers as possible. Or three, make up an answer. And um, I think one is important. I mean, I honestly tell you, I mean, I know this is supposed to be some big philosophical question. I can't even remember any time in my life where I've been troubled by not knowing where the universe came from. I mean, honestly, maybe I'm just this blank, squalid, fossilized, massive, uncurious blob of biosphere or something. But I honestly, I've never been troubled. I mean, there, there are so many troubles in the world to, to focus on in the here and now. That, you know, peaceful parenting, national debts, a war, ethnic conflicts, like the, all, all the stuff that's going on in the world right now. These are things I think that demand the attention of, of good people and I know that they get your attention as well so I'm not trying to put us on opposite sides of the wall as far as that goes Sure, but I honestly I've never I mean I, I think at times because I'm interested in physics and you know it's, it's pretty cool to think you know where did it start you know, but I don't think I've ever been like troubled and I've certainly never felt that knowing the origins of the universe you know the backstory of, of the matter I don't know that that would, I'm not sure fund, fundamentally what that would change in me. I, I'm just telling you sort of my, there's not, not any kind of philosophical argument, just, just right, so you know. Yeah, but, of course. Uh, but I do know, of course, that there are people to whom the origins of the universe are very important. It's just, you know, 14 and a half billion years ago, or whatever it is, that's, um, that's a long time. And I don't think that knowing the origins of the universe would change one piece of matter in the current universe because the physical laws are the physical laws. And I don't think it would change any of the moral 
crusades that would be important to to both of us, you know, working to eliminate violence and corruption and deception and um, fraud and uh, sure. aggression and manipulation and abuse. I mean, all, all of the things that we would, you know, honest, good-hearted atheist Christians, you name it, would be interested. I don't know that the origin story of the universe would, would affect any of that uh, in, in practical terms in the here. I, I would agree with you that it does not. I think it's just uh, something to look to to... Um, if you're, if you're, if whatever your belief system is doesn't somehow explain that, then I would say that it that it calls into question the validity of your belief system, right? So I think that's why it doesn't particularly trouble me either. You know, it's it's more bothersome questions or you know, like what happens after death. You know, given that death is one of the more common fears, I don't really think that it's a particularly common bother. Uh, doesn't bother a lot of people, you know, how the universe got into being, but it's particularly interesting because of the uh, mystery of it. Well, but it is it is tough for for religious people because science, of course, has answered a lot of questions that were formerly the province of religion, right? And I certainly don't mean by this specifically Christianity, but I mean, you know, there used to be stories about why there were volcanoes erupting. There used to be stories about why the lightning flashed and the thunder rumbled and there used to be, you know, the origins of life or, or at least how life came to be in its current form and so on. And uh, you know, what is disease and, and, and so on. Sure. And um, you know, epilepsy was considered possession by some in the past. And so now science has answered a good deal of these and, you know, God seems to be moving further and further back, right? just over the horizon of where we don't know stuff yet. That's where God goes. And now he's kind of retreated back to the very origin part of the universe, and that's where a lot of people are still hoping that there can be room. And uh, and that's why I think that for people of faith, people who believe in a deity, it's the origins of the universe have become more important than for others. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, this idea that it's sort of a stalemate between those who say there is a God and those who say there isn't, that it's like we just have to agree to disagree or throw up our hands and that there remains philosophically room for ambiguity, I don't think is valid because this is not how we explain things to kids, right? I mean, if if my daughter, if she hasn't, but, but if she were to, come into our room, my room at night I'm screaming and crying and daddy daddy there's a there's a monster under my bed right you know most dads they poke under the bed with a broomstick they lift up the bed see there's nothing there right there's no monster under your bed and um, I don't think it would be healthy or right to say to your daughter well I can't see one I can't feel one. I can't smell one. But there might be. There might be a monster under your bed. So try and get some sleep, okay? <laughs> right? No, we would do the empirical test, right? Of course. Well, I mean, yeah. This is what we're comfortable with, right? This is why the uh, the concept of faith is so uncomfortable is because it... it um, your your empirical observations of the world are irrelevant. So, 
Right. Well, no, 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 they're not irrelevant. They're, they're countered. I'm sorry, you cut out... Right. You, it's not that they're irrelevant. You cut out there for a second, you say they're counter-relevant? Well, they're, they're countered, right? It's, it's not that they're not applicable. It's that the opposite is applicable. See, this is... That for which there is no sense, evidence, or rational consistency is that which is both incorrect and non-existent, according to every bit of rational epistemology that there is. So if it is logically self-contradictory, then it is invalid, right? And false as a proposition. And if it is... Um, it, it, so if existence is claimed for which there is no empirical evidence, then the existence is unconfirmed. If existence is claimed for which empirical evidence can never be ascertained, then existence can never be achieved. It can never, be, it can never exist. I mean, it's the old trick where I say I have an invisible spider on my head and you say, well, I'll just touch it then. And I say, well, not only is it invisible, you can't even touch it. Okay, well, I'll try infrared, I'll, you know, whatever it is, whatever test you come up with. I say, you can't detect it until there's no conceivable test by which this invisible spider can be detected. At which point you can reasonably say to me, well, Steph, what is the difference between this invisible spider and there not being a spider. And I say, there's no difference, but you must still believe in the invisible spider. This is, right, it makes no sense. It's not just that your sense data, it doesn't apply. It's, it's directly countered because in every other circumstance, you would say, well, that's non-existence. But with a deity, you have to create a special category, an exception, which counteracts everything else that your sense data has told you. So it's in, it's in opposition to sense data and empirical rationality. Fair enough. Yeah, that does the fair point. It's just um, I'm just not convinced by it, right? I, I just can't be convinced that because I can't prove definitively that something exists, it does not exist. Well, now you see, but now you're restructuring. He's restating the argument in emotional terms because proved affinity that something exists yeah because okay like they're just they're trying to find the 10th planet or something out there now right or ninth planet um, the what pluto got downgraded to a dwarf planet but um they've found evidence of some ninth planet out there beyond now have they conclusively proved that it exists no does that mean it doesn't exist of course not so what's the difference so well, the difference is the planet is not a square circle. Right? The planet is not a self-contradictory entity. How is a deity self-contradictory? Lord, how is a deity not self-contradictory? Um, so God is all-powerful. Yes. And God is all-knowing. Yes. Right? So. Um, well, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I hate to interrupt. But I, I should mention that it... Um, is bound within his nature. I mean, this he cannot, for example, sin. So not all powerful. Not entirely all powerful. Yeah, that's that's well, true. that's kind of binary, right? All powerful is you know a binary, right? So, um, so God doesn't have free will because God cannot choose to sin. Now, if God cannot sin, can we actually call God virtuous if He's never tempted? I get all the those are more ethical questions, but. So 
God knows everything that's going to happen in the future, right? Yes. And is God capable of changing what happens in the future? I suppose. Okay, but then God can't know what's going to happen in the future. Why is that? Because I cannot know for certain that I'm going to climb to the top of the CN Tower tomorrow and also choose whether I want to climb up the CN Tower tomorrow or do something else. Both those conditions can't be true. If I know 100% for sure that I'm going to climb to the top of the CN Tower tomorrow, I cannot change what I'm going to do tomorrow without invalidating my certain knowledge of the future. The problem is, is that you, being a person, are bound by time. And that I understand that you have an argument for this, and I expect I'll be hearing it, but I, but God is not, is, cannot be inside of time. Well, and time is a force of this world, right? So if we can agree that if there is a God, you know, I understand that, the, that you don't believe that, but if we can agree that there is, for the sake of debate, then he cannot be subjected to time because time is a construct of this universe in which we live. It's a force of physics, right? So, Okay, fine. That's, that's fine. So does God know what I'm going to do tomorrow? Yes. Can God change what I'm going to do tomorrow? Good, but he does not. What do you mean he could, but he does not? Well, God allows us free will, right? This is... Well, no, if he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, how can I have free will? Well, knowing is not the same thing as controlling. No, no, come on. If God knows exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow, how can I have free will? How does, how does his knowing something impede your free will? Um, because he already knows what my choice is going to be. So how can it really be a choice? Because you... I mean, if what I'm doing tomorrow is foreordained in the mind of God, how can the choice be mine? Well, you, I mean, the understanding that he knows what you're going to choose, right? You're still choosing. Him knowing what you're going to choose is not the same thing as him deciding for you. No, I'm, I don't think there's any decision. If he knows with 100% certainty what I'm going to do tomorrow, then claiming that I have choice in the matter, you, 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 I'm mean, just curious if you find any, you, you, can you understand why that question might be challenging for people? Because you seem very glib, like, well, no, 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 no. But, I mean, if you take sort of the religious background out of it, it is a troublesome question, right? Like if I said to someone, because it's determinism, right? If I said to someone, well, you have no choices because you're just atoms moving according to the laws of physics, right? Your brain is not magically excluded from the laws of physics. And therefore, what you do tomorrow is completely foreordained, um, just by the laws of physics. But you are morally responsible for what you do. That would be a challenge, right? Because I'd be saying, there's no such thing as choice, but you have a choice. And that you're, sub you're accountable for it, sure. Something of a paradox there. Yeah. And I, I believe in free will. I mean, this is one thing I love about Christians in particular, uh, maybe it's just affinity to the religion that I was raised in, but um, the the nihilism involved in I would I would rather be a Christian 
and accept free will than an atheist if it meant determinism. I'd be like flocking to you guys, thundering from the pulpit, you name <laughs> it. So, you know, I will uh, sacrifice physics to save God if by saving God is the only way to save free will. Not that I believe that's a necessary choice, but that's I'm just telling you where my investment is. I got a three-part series on free will I did some years ago, mm-hmm. which people can check out if they want at uh, youtube.com slash free domain radio. But, um, but yeah, if, if God knows everything I'm going to do tomorrow, first of all, free will is a bit of a challenge. And secondly, if he is capable of changing what I'm going to do tomorrow, then he can't be 100% certain. Now, if he's not capable of changing what I'm going to do tomorrow, first of all, free will becomes a problem. And secondly, he's not all-powerful. See, knowledge and power cannot both be at 100%. The higher up one goes, the lower the other one goes. Hmm. And now, you said God's outside of time. Sure, but I'm not. Outside of time. I'm not out of time. Right. And so even if we just say God's knowledge of me within the time continuum that I exist in, well, it still doesn't solve. You can say God's outside of time, but I'm not. And so if he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, he can't change it. And this is why omniscience is just one of many problems. But um, this is why omniscience and omnipotence are contradictory characteristics. Well, first... Or properties. First of all, I'd say that it's kind of difficult to say that. I mean, I, you it's you can't even really conceptualize being outside of time because we just don't even know what that's like. But I'm, and so I think that they kind of um, it, it it makes it sound as though you God first understand to do tomorrow and then afterwards, which you know. But if God's outside of time, then there is no afterwards. And so I don't even you know as as a person who's never experienced being outside of time, I can't even understand how that works. You know, how can you have before and after outside of time? Right. But I would, I would actually, I'm, I'm not sure entire, I'm not sure you, I understand what the uh, contradiction between omnipotence and um, omniscience is. Well, of course, if you remove the restriction of time, then the question, as you say, becomes somewhat meaningless, right? What question? But that's like saying existence, if I remove the concept of tangibility, but retain the concept of existence versus non-existence, well, the whole point of existence versus non-existence is tangibility. Can it be measured in some objective empirical fashion, right? And so, if I say I want to remove the concept of tangibility from the question of existence versus non-existence, Okay, you can say, well, the question becomes moot, but you've just rendered the whole thing incomprehensible by taking away the one central part that makes sense of anything, right? With, with regards to all of this, right? And so if you say, well, omniscience and omnipotence have problems in terms of future knowledge and future choice, but I'm going to remove the element of time. Okay, but once you remove the element of time, all you've done is taken away a standard of proof, you haven't disproven anything. Like you so if I say to you, the, the gremlin, the 82 gremlin in my garage, you say, well, I can't touch it, I can't find it, it, it doesn't exist. And I say, well, 
let's say that the tangibility, if I remove the equation of tangibility, if I remove the requirement for tangibility, can you say that it does or doesn't exist? No, no. no. It becomes incomprehensible, right? It's, it, it, it's the, whole, the whole standard is tangibility, right? So if I say, well, let's decide on the gremlin's existence or non-existence with no reference to tangibility. All I'm doing is I'm removing a standard of proof. I'm not, right, do you know what I mean? Like I'm just taking stuff away. I'm not adding anything. Right, which is why theism requires faith because if you were going to choose in this analogy that the gremlin does exist and is intangible, then that is, that's a leap of faith, right? Because you cannot prove that. Well, it's not that, no, you can prove that the gremlin doesn't exist, right? I mean, if you bring in every single conceivable recording capacity that whatever, right? I mean, just walk through the damn thing, right? You can't walk through a gremlin, right? Right, so you can, you can prove that the gremlin doesn't exist in the garage. That's easy, right? We, we do that all the time, right? I mean, I don't sit there groping at a grocery shelf when there's no bread. Oh, maybe there's invisible bread. I've got to go get my infrared camera. Maybe I'll get my night vision goggles, you know? I need, I need a tachyon scanner, right? I mean, maybe there's elf bread somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, oh, there's no bread. We do this all the time. I don't go into a parking spot in my car and find an invisible gremlin there, right? I, mean, I know where the parking spot is because there's a gap, right? We know what non-existence is very easily. I mean, at least in the tangible stuff, right? Yes. And so it's not, well, you know, I can't quite prove that the gremlin doesn't exist, so maybe it kind of exists, I'll have faith in it. According to every method of proof or non-proof, existence or non-existence, there's no gremlin there if you can walk through it and whatever, right? you can't see it, you can't feel it, it doesn't show up, and it's not there, right? It's not there and not there, it's not ambiguous, it's not maybe, maybe not, it's, it's not there. And you can create a separate category for a deity where you say, I'm going to remove all the standards, but then you can't use things like proof or disproof or anything like that. Like if I take away tangibility as evidence for or against the existence of something, I can throw away tangibility, but then I also have to throw away the concept of existence of that thing, right? But what theists do is they say, well, I want to get rid of time. I want to get rid of cause and effect. I want there to be some bound within itself entity. So they're throwing away standards, but then they still use terms like proof or disproof. It's like, no, you've just taken away all the standards of proof or disproof, so you can't use those words anymore. Why would not? And, and that's closer to faith as far as I understand it, right? I wouldn't use words for disproof to describe a god because obviously it cannot be proved or disproved. No, so you just did it again. If you've taken away all standards of proof or disproof, it's outside the universe, it's outside of time, it requires faith, then saying proof or disproof, it can't be proved or disproved. Oh. You can't even say I, that. I see what you're saying. Because you've taken away, you've taken away all the language sure. that is involved in proof or disproof, so you can't use the proof or disproof anymore. It then just, you have to retreat to, and you know, and you will sooner or later, because what happens is in rational debates with theists, they try the rational arguments, they're disproven, and you know what comes next, right? I'll be honest. It's faith. You're right, yeah. It's faith, and, and that's perfectly, it's not philosophically understand, it's not my thing, to put it mildly, but that's where it has to go to. It has to be, I believe, because there's no reason. There's no reasons, there's no rationality, there's no empiricism, there's no cause and effect that I believe. It's a standalone thing. I don't mean standalone like 
It just there, there's no prop in reality by which you can plant the base of that thing. I've heard this argument before, and I've uh, it's just never been uh, described in such depth that I could actually understand it. So that's that's certainly interesting. I am the epistemology whisperer. <laughs> I am like I mean the number of messages I get where it's like, a I thought philosophy was totally boring until I realized I could get the shit kicked out of me for saying the wrong thing in public. Um, I thought philosophy was boring until I got fired. Uh, until my friends all hated me, whatever, right? Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have pretty good ability to try and, and this is the job, you know, this is the job to me, is um, get people to understand the arguments. Look, I mean, first of all, hugely respect you for having this conversation. I wish more atheists would speak as reasonably about the state as you do about atheism. And uh, that total props to you. I mean, I've enjoyed the conversation. Has been helpful to you? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've yeah, very much enjoyed it. Anytime. Any, yeah, any, I mean, it's been anytime here. Another. It's been killer. Yeah, kick ass. It's been killer, and and it's been civil, right? I mean, we're not yelling at each other. I mean, I don't think I could with my voice right now, but <laughs> even if I wanted to, right? It's been an enjoyable conversation. I've learned something. I've learned a new way to approach it, and I've had some challenges in the conversation. I've had to think on my feet. You're a good person to debate these ideas with. It's been positive, productive. And we've at least understood each other's position, which is the first step towards any kind of rapprochement. And man, you try going to talk to atheists about feminism or the state, do you think it goes like this? Well, I, I've never tried, so I, I can't say that I know. Well, I tell you what, go look up Gamergate. Gamergate. Yeah, Gamergate. G-A-M-E-R-G-A-T-E. Will do. And see how... And it's not all about atheism or anything like that, but, uh, yeah, they're not... Uh, well, just social justice warriors. A lot of them are atheists, right? But anyway. There's one more thing that I would like to ask you, just, just out of pure curiosity, uh, because of mm -hmm. all the things, I think there's one particular thing that I find very difficult to... Uh, I've, I've tried myself, and I can't really answer it without... Um, an understanding in Christianity, and that is, what do you think happened uh, three days after Jesus of Nazareth was killed? Mm. Well, I think that somebody robbed the tomb. Yeah, I, I, and, and who do you think that was? Oh, boy, you're trying to Harry Bosch me on this 2,000-year-old murder mystery. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's, I, there's two theories that I've heard, and the first one is the, yeah, the Romans. Listen, you are much better of an expert than I am at this, so uh, Yes, yeah, so I'm, there's two people who I've heard uh, explanations of who robbed the tomb, or at least people suggest. And the first one's the Romans, and the second one is the original Christians. Um, I'm just going to rule the Romans out, because that would have... I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to say that they had the body the whole time. They have this thorn in their side of the Christian church. And they couldn't, I mean, they could have easily just presented the body to them and said, you idiots, here's your dead God, right? Um, and so, so the, I'd say that the Romans could not have conceivably um, been the robbers if there were robbers. And so then the only other people that I can think were the original Christians. Um, and then they lied about how um, they saw Jesus again and... Um, they're certainly some of the best orators. I mean, whatever happened, I think we can agree 
because uh, I can't think of any explanation of what happened that is not the most profound thing in human history of some kind. You know, obviously, if he's the son of God, then that's the most profound thing in human history. Um, but even if yeah. the original Christian is wrong, that's one of the best robberies ever. And there's some of the best orators ever for convincing so many people that, in fact, Jesus was alive when he was dead. And there's some of the best, you know, con artists. And so, you know, it's, I think it's interesting, even if you don't... Um, believe that Jesus is the son of God or that he rose from the dead or any of that just simply because something very, very profound happened. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think that it's, it's kind of hard to say that even the original Christians robbed the tomb because, um, they, they would have had to, first of all, hide it, the body somewhere where no one would have found it. But then they also had to, uh, convince, or very, very well um, fake documents suggesting that hundreds of people saw Jesus after he was um, definitely killed, right? And how they robbed the tomb in the first place is, is another matter of um, debate. Right. Well, I can tell you what I think, and please understand, this is total idiot armchair theology for me. So take it with all a complete grain of salt. But I can tell you, Parker, what I think one of the emotional drivers was behind the origins of Christianity and and why it was so astoundingly powerful and remains so throughout the world to this day, is that polytheism is moral relativism. And the avenues of the gods that infested the increasingly secular Roman world back in the day, you know, where you it was a buffet, right? You could go and pick whatever gods you wanted, and they all had different rules and so sure. on. But that is the theological equivalent of radical moral relativism. Neither of these, none of these religions claimed to be the absolute true and universal truth. That was the Christians who came along and said, these are the false gods, these are leading you astray, there is one true God, and Jesus is his son. And right now, it is the same motivation, I think, that motivated the early Christians, it's the same motivation that motivates me, which is, I am literally and viscerally repulsed by relativism. Relative truth, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's... There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as good and bad. Oh, it makes me cringe. And morality is just a cultural opinion. And who are you to say who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad? And you've got to chillax and, you know, just let things hang out and don't be such a square. And, you know, like all of this vile, vile, it's like antifreeze in the blood. It tastes good on the tongue and kills you in the innards. Indeed. And moral relativism is the natural result of expanding state power. Expanding state power must produce moral relativism, which in, in, in turn produces expanding state power. Because it divides human beings into the makers and the takers, as, we've, as I've talked about before, the people who produce stuff and then the people who use the power of the state to take stuff from them. And in, in order to avoid the bad conscience that they have for being violent aorta-sucking parasites, 
they have to pretend that there's no such thing as right and wrong. I mean, people who do good are not afraid of objective standards of right and wrong. Evil people are terrified of objective standards of right and wrong, which is why when a philosopher comes along who dares to espouse objective morality, all but the good attack that person. It's continual throughout history. And it is so repulsive, moral relativism. I totally agree. That people feel that it unravels the very physics of civilization itself. It's like the soft ash that covers Pompeii. It's like the gentle tremors that eventually bring down a building, though it can be years as the rot and creaking spreads through its foundation. Moral relativism is the sinkhole that sucks down the entire cathedral of, of civilization. And it's, it's cowards and lazy people and greedy people and parasitical people of every class, rich, middle, poor, every gender. People who want to slimily avoid the consequences of their own mistakes. People who want to force other people to pay for their own bad decisions and then pretend there's no such thing as right and wrong. Moral relativism rots everything because it's so hypocritical. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we live in an age of moral relativism right now. And yet, if you go against the leftist, fascist, social justice warriors, they'll scream that you're racist, sexist, phobic this, misogynist that. So they say there's no such thing as right and wrong. But if you cross them... They have temper tantrums about how bad you are. Sure. And so there's such hypocrisy, and, and it, it, it just dissolves and disintegrates everything. Until, I think, this may be something that's happen, happening to Europe at the moment. I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know whether Europe should be saved or not. I don't know. I'm torn. I, that's a topic for another time. It's a big topic. But I honestly don't know whether it deserves... Saving. I don't know. I don't know. It's like that old line from Fight Club. I hate the panda bears that won't even fuck to save their own species. And I think in late Rome, the welfare state, the warfare state, the imperialism, you know, all of the characteristics that many people have talked about as being in common with the late United States imperial empire. It's so fragmented and so gross and so, so hypocritical and so hysterical, all this moral relativism. Because moral relativists should be anarchists, right? Logically. If you're an extreme moral relativist, then there's no such thing as any rules, so there should be no laws, no governments, no infliction of any rules upon anyone else. But they're not. Moral relativists are so totalitarian. It's insane. But that's because they want to sell sex, drugs, and rock and roll to the R-selected people in exchange for economic freedoms, which R-selected people are very, very keen to make that trade. Well, sure. You have to have some kind of paradox in order to convince someone that's a good idea. And so I think that there was a deep instinct late in the Roman Empire that moral relativism was causing the end of civilization as it stood. And they weren't wrong. 
they weren't wrong. And I think there was not anyone there who could create and promulgate a system of philosophy that could replace moral relativism, that could challenge and attack moral relativism, which is why I worked so hard on universally preferable behavior and why I still take calls on it now, years after the book's out, and why I'm idly working on a, or in spare moments, working on a sequel or an update. But there was a desperate need to fight back against moral relativism. And if you got to play Weekend at Bernie's with the Jewish zombie, prop it up and pretend it's still preaching in order to save civilization by giving people something to rally around that wasn't cynical, snarling, empty-headed relativism. There's such a hunger for that in people. I think there's a hunger for it now, which is one of the reasons behind someone like Donald Trump. And, <laughs> right? I mean, people are just sick and tired of, of all this moral relativism, which is fascism in, in disguise. And not even that much disguise anymore if you look at campuses. So I think that the fact that the Christians said, to hell with this moral relativism. This avenue of temples, this buffet, this pick what you want, this choose, forget it. This is, this, 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 the demons, this is wrong. There is one truth, one virtue, one morality, one son of God. And people's revulsion at moral relativism and desperate and civilizing, civilization protecting thirst for a universal moral truth, I believe, was the driving force. They weren't trying to resurrect Jesus. They were trying to resurrect Rome. And Jesus was the vehicle. And they, I think, extended the life of the empire another couple of hundred years. Interesting. Utterly unprovable, I assume, but it's just my thought. Yeah, it's, yeah sure. And it's the, it's the first time I've ever heard that one before. All right, I got to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate your call. You're welcome back anytime, and thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again. so much for having me, Stefan. Thanks, Mark. Best wishes. Take care. All right. Well, up next is Ben, and Ben wrote in and said, "I was raised in a spare the rod, spoil the child kind of household. Now I'm a parent of a five-year-old and was wondering about how to avoid the pitfalls that many perceive in the type of parenting that your show is discussing." How would you apply a doctrine of a lack of classical discipline for children while still giving them the tools necessary to survive in our flawed society? That's from Ben. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm well, sir. How are you? Well, thank you. Do you have any particular circumstances in mind or situations? Well, I mean, I guess I just... Um... I mean, I guess I should say, you know, uh, foundationally, I, my biggest fear is somehow screwing up my child by not, you know, kind of properly equipping her to deal with a world that is decidedly imperfect. And, um, you know, I, you know, I mentioned spoil the rod or excuse me, spare the rod, spoil the child, you know, pretty intentionally. Um, and that was the kind of household that I was raised in. And so I, I sort of just, um, 
you know, the other, I, I guess the best way is to give you an example, you know, the other day, um, you know, we told her to go brush her teeth and, you know, she wasn't a fan of, she wasn't a fan of her toothpaste. We tried a couple different flavors to, you know, kind of get her into it and it just wasn't happening. She wasn't, you know, she didn't want to do it. And we told her, well, you know, we're sorry, we have to anyway. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of a, a really pretty minor thing, you know, escalated pretty quickly into, you know, her screaming and shouting and, um, you know, and so I guess I just wonder how you, how you deal with that, you know, when, when, if you eliminate spanking is sort of the, you know, the big gun, um, you know, how do you kind of deal with that? And, and that's a, that's a fine example of, of the larger problem in my mind, which is that, um, you know, at some point she's going to be told no, and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be kind of hard knocks of life coming. And I, I don't know, I just kind of worry about, um, you know, how to equip her to deal with, with that while also being conscious of the fact that, I, you know, I, I don't think spanking is the, you know, that's it, been the last resort for me. It's been a, it's only happened a few times and I've never felt good about it. Right. Give me a, more details about how it escalated. Um, okay. She, uh, you know, she's, she kind of began, um, you know, crying over, you know, the fact that we were going to make her brush her teeth and she, you know, she's a very sweet kid. She's a very gentle soul. Um, and she, she gets upset, you know, pretty easily. And so she quickly started crying and, and, um, efforts to console her were, were futile, you know, and it was getting well on past bedtime. And it sort of came to a point where, you know, I just kind of had to tell her I'm, I'm sorry you don't like this, sweetie, but you just have to do it, you know, and and she went from uh, mildly upset to extremely upset and, you know, pretty much screamed no. Um, and so, you know, I explained to her that, you know, this is, I'm sorry, honey, this just has to happen. You know, you have to brush your teeth. And uh, she was just not calming down. So, you know, I told her, well, honey, why don't you... Um, you know, why don't you go in your room and sit and relax for a few minutes while you calm down? And, and, uh, you know, she again screamed no, and, you know, she didn't want to do that either. And it just kind of, it, it turned into a shit show pretty quickly. Right. Right. Is she five going on six or, uh, she just turned newly five, she just turned five in January. Right. How well does she understand why she needs to brush her teeth? Um, I think pretty well. Um, I, I make a pretty concerted effort in all things to to try to you know use reason with her and try to help her understand cause and effect and and things like that. So you know I, I I'm quite certain that we've implicitly told or uh, you know explicitly told her um, you know you have to brush your teeth. Otherwise you're going to get cavities and you know, it's, it's going to be bad. It's going to be painful and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, cavities is pretty abstract. I don't know if you've like, if you drawn it out, has she seen any videos like the bugs that sit in your teeth and eat your enamel? Well, you know, the, I didn't, does she viscerally get why, why it's important. And, and also 
the way that you know if a child has viscerally got something is that they agree that it's necessary. Because if you can't get a child's agreement ahead of time, then you're left with these kinds of situations. Now, getting a child's agreement doesn't mean it's always going to go perfectly. But, you know, does she, has she accepted and said, you know, I understand why and I will, I promise to, to brush my teeth, you know, twice a day or whatever, right? You know what? No, I, uh, I think you may have a point there. Perhaps I need to get a little more visceral in my explanation to her of, of uh, why that stuff's important. Yeah, because if she understands, then you're not imposing your will on her. Right. Right. Like, I mean, you know, you could say if, um, you know, if, if you were standing at the bottom of a hill and there was a, a rock coming down the hill and it was going to bump you and I grabbed you out of the way, at first you'd, she'd be like, what would you be? And she'd be like, I'd be mad. You grabbed me, right? Right. But then if I pointed out the rock, you'd say, well, thank you, right? Sure. So it's all about her understanding of the cause and effect. I think my guess would be that if she's saying, I don't want to brush my teeth, what she's saying is, I don't want to do something just because you're telling me to. Sure. Which is actually something you want in your child, for the most part. You, you know, if you want to raise them to be successful. No, absolutely. In a world where, you know, in independent thinking and resistance to blind. Anyway, you, anyone can raise children to be obedient. That's like, you just yell at them and threaten them and punish them. You, know, you just keep escalating until they comply. That's that's easy as pie. Yeah, I guess there's a bit but of... But raising them too, right? I, Go ahead. You're right. I, I guess there's a bit of a double standard in my mind because I want her to question authority except for where it's my authority because I guess I just want her to trust that I always have her best interest in mind. Um, but you don't... Well, yeah, you don't want her to... Because you don't want her to do anything just because you're you, yeah, right? You're right. I mean, I've told this to my daughter repeatedly, like, like, don't, don't, don't do something just because I'm telling you to, right? I mean, always ask, right? Sure. And, you know, but, but the yeah, thing is that, you know, and, and this, the funny thing is that I'm guessing like you, like, like most dads, you're busy as hell, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. and, and so you say, a lot of times we say, I don't have time to, to sit down and for 20 minutes go over exactly what happens when bacteria gets into teeth and gums and all that kind of stuff, right? right? I don't want to show her where the nerve is and where it goes, and I don't want to show her pictures of British smiles or whatever, right? Right. And so the funny thing is, is well, I don't have 20 minutes for that, but somehow we have time for an hour meltdown later, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. And so to me, the, the parenting stuff, it's all about prevention. It's all about... Now, once you have agreement and it's in the realm of promise, and of course, you know, I know if you're listening to this show, you're working hard to keep your promises or explaining if you can. Oh, I, that's, that's been a long theme throughout her childhood as I always, you know, I, uh, you know, always keep my word with her, always. Good. Well, that's perfect. So... Um, so then you need to find a way to get her to commit out of knowledge to brushing her teeth. Sure. Uh, and, and and once she does that, then you do, you know, she can resist and all that, and you can say, but you promised. Right. You, you, we had a promise. And I always say to my daughter, look, you can change 
your commitment to me. Like if you've promised to do something to me, you can change your commitment to me. But we have to talk about it beforehand. You can't just change it in the moment. Sure. Without, Especially you can't change it without reference to the fact that you've promised. And so if she wants to change the deal, we say, okay, well, we'll talk about it tomorrow. We can't change the deal right now because we can't change it just before you go to bed when you go to We'll talk about it tomorrow, whatever. So that's, yeah, number one is it's all about the preparation. You know, spend, you know, so much of parenting. It becomes a vicious circle because you, have, you spend so much time playing catch-up to a lack of preparation that you then never have any time to prepare for the next one. Do you know what sure. I mean? I don't mean you. I just mean parents no, in I general. Understand. I'm sure this is, right? So the, the, the preparation is key and, and just laboriously going through and explaining it till they, till they understand and, you know, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I say to my daughter, I don't, I don't like brushing my teeth. Okay, well, occasionally if I've had, you know, food with an aftertaste, it's nice getting that shiny feeling. But, you know, it's like going to the dentist who looks forward to it, but, you know, it's just something you got to do. Yeah. And um, so if, she, you know, if you're like, I don't like brushing my teeth either, and if sympathize, because, you know, who does, right? I've definitely had that. And uh, this is something we, you know. And, and I also say to her that she, she never has to brush her teeth if she never eats any sugar. Right. And, and you know, there's kind of truth in that. It's not a perfect equation, sure. right? Because, you know, there's some stuff that gets kind of sugary in your mouth and all certain kinds of carbs. But, but I say, you know, this is, you know, in life there's things that we like and then there's things that we have to do. And um, if you like a little piece of sugar once in a while, I know I do, then... You know, one of the, you have to brush your teeth because that's a pleasure and then you have to do a little bit of work afterwards, sure. right? And so once she sort of understands that brushing her teeth is a choice that she makes when she has anything sweet, okay, well then she's choosing to brush her teeth by what she eats, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, the last thing that I would say, uh, and then I'll oh, shut no, up no, no, you no, can no. tell me what you think, but the last thing that I'll say is this. It doesn't matter if she doesn't brush her teeth once. Sure. You know, because you're sitting there, she's getting really upset. It's perfectly fine to say, you know what? Just give me a rinse. You know, switch it around. Give me a rinse. We'll talk in the morning. Right. Right, because a lot of time, and I find myself getting into this train track. I got to jump the tracks all the time because, you know, the way I was raised and, you know, you, you too, mm -hmm. right? You know, someone says jump, you say how high, that kind of stuff, right? I have to constantly jump the tracks. I have to say, okay, I'm I'm heading towards a pitched battle with my daughter. Is this worth it? Right. Right? Okay. If she's doing the proverbial running into traffic, sure, it's worth sure. it, right? If she goes to bed one night having not brushed her teeth, her teeth will be fine. Does that mean, because we have this thing like, okay, well, if I let this standard go, she'll never brush her teeth again or, you know, it's going to be a huge battle every night and so on, right? But I don't think that's the case. I think because you left a bruise in your relationship and it wasn't worth it from a keeping her teeth clean standpoint, if that makes yeah. sense. So to me, if my daughter really doesn't want to do something and it's not that big a deal, even if she agreed to beforehand, it's like, yeah, okay, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And I think that gives you some flexibility. And it doesn't mean that, and I say to, you know, the next day I'll say, okay, you still have to brush your teeth, but I need to explain why better so that, you know, because the important thing 
is that you know why you're brushing your teeth, not that you do what I say, right? Obviously, you know that. But um, you don't surrender the principle if you back down from an instance, but you maintain positivity in the relationship so that she's more receptible, receptive, receptive, sorry, to your next message, if that makes yes. sense. Well, and the, the, the teeth brushing thing was just kind of the latest example. I mean, we've had the same kind of, you know, we've had the same kind of meltdowns over, you know, Hey, it's, you know, we need to stop watching TV now because we've had enough TV for the day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, I, well, and that's a bit, you know, when when you say we've had enough TV for the day, if she wants to keep watching, that's not a true statement because sure. we includes her, yeah. right? You could mm-hmm. say um, that um, I, 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 I would really like to have a conversation instead or I'd like to play cards instead. I'd like to do something where we're not just staring at the TV, but we're interacting with each other, like something like that. Yeah, I think that's a different approach I can try. I'll, I'll put that into practice. Um, kids are very good at uh, knowing when something you're saying is not true. Right. Right, because if it's just you and her in the room and you say, I think we've had enough TV for the day, you're telling her what she's experiencing and it's not true because she wants to keep watching. Sure. And that's going to annoy her. You know, just as, like if you're right in the middle of watching an exciting film and your wife walks in and said, I think we've had enough of that, turns it off. What she's really saying is, I've had enough of that. Right. But she's including you in that, which is kind of annoying, yeah. right? No, I, and this is why the relentless honesty and, and not, you can't even use colloquialism sometimes, like uh, figures of speech or whatever, because kids are very good at knowing when there's clear, understandable honesty coming out of you and when there's not. Sorry, you were going to say? Oh, no, I was going to say that's uh, that actually represents a a uh, fundamental paradigm shift in the way I view my daughter really. Um, and it's interesting because I guess I, she is a child, but she's also a little person and I, I don't know. I just kind of, it's kind of a different view. Oh, I, it's a completely different view because this is not the, um, this is not the unparenting, which I've sometimes railed against, where the kids can do whatever they want and they'll figure it out for themselves. I don't believe no. in that. You know, if that's the case, let, let's let them go and get jobs and contribute <laughs> to the economy. Right. right? And um, so this, you know, guidance without authority, it, it doesn't give you the easy out of the unparenting, but it also doesn't give you the easy out of just being a bully. It's a challenge. Right. Well, I'll put it into practice. I think um, I think there's some good advice there. And I I, I may or may not have mentioned in, in the email. I, um, I I sort of viewed this as a kind of a microcosm in the in the issue of the the non-aggression principle. In that, um, you know, at a certain point, the people who have the power are not going to relinquish that power. And I was wondering, you know, maybe sort of tangentially related, you know, you know, what your, what your feeling is about how the, uh, how the non-aggression principle sort of works when you're trying to 
live in a really free society when those that have power over you will not cede that power willingly. Yeah, I mean, they won't, they won't cede that power, for sure. And, um, I mean, the only thing, as I've said for a long time, is that we have to continue to talk about the non-aggression principle and objective ethics, and we have to bring the maximum application of those principles in the spheres of life that we have influence over our friends, our family, our children, our relationships. Mm-hmm. I can't guarantee that that's going to win, but I can guarantee you that it's the best shot we've got. Sure. And the more people who do it, the more we will win. And every person who changes their mind about that is just one more crack in the ceiling. Well, I can respect that. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Um, While we're on, I wanted to mention to you that I, I found your um, I found your podcast really helpful and uh, you know sort of helping me apply more thought to everyday life and uh, just really appreciate the work you're doing. Well, I appreciate um, you telling me that, and I hugely appreciate the work that you're putting into with your kids. I mean, that's what it's all about for me, and I really appreciate you letting me know about that. And so, yeah, a little bit of a short show tonight, just to save my voice. And um, I look forward to, of course, your support, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out, fdrural.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link. I look forward to chatting with you again soon and uh, did a really good uh, interview with a, a very brave lady. You can check it out on the channel if you're just listening. You probably heard it in the feed, but it's worth having a look. It's uh, called the um, the Hidden Rape of Europe. Uh, myself with uh, Tony Bugle, T-O-N-I Bugle, which is well worth checking out. She's a very brave lady. Had a very good chat about what's going on in Europe at the moment. Thanks, everyone, so much for all of your very, very kind support. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. I'll talk to you soon.